0: Today, I want to talk about Phyllis Wheatley, an American poet, and she lived from 1753 to 1784. She was the first African-American woman and the second woman of any race to publish a book of poems. She was born in Africa, in the Gambia, and in 1761, she was captured at seven years old by slave traders who brought her to America. When she came to America, to the Boston area, she was purchased by the Wheatley family. John Wheatley was a tailor and he purchased Phyllis for his wife to be a personal servant to the wife. And she got the name Phyllis because the name of the ship on which she traveled from Africa to the Americas was called Phyllis. And of course, as was the custom of the day, her last name was the same as the family who had purchased her. When she got there at this young age, the ship captain didn't sell her to the Wheatleys for very much because she was very frail, she was kind of sickly, and he really didn't expect that she was going to live very long because of the frailty. And I'm sure that the passage Over on the ship was difficult, and she was essentially almost naked when she arrived. It was cold, so she had been exposed to the elements, very difficult circumstances and situations, and she's only seven years old. What the Wheatleys discovered as they started educating her when she arrived, they discovered that within 16 months of her arrival, she had learned to speak and read English, She could also read the Bible, she had learned to read Greek, she could read Latin, and she was reading all the classical books, including all of the British literature. She was incredibly intelligent and studied astronomy and also geography. So when the Wheatley saw the intellectual acumen that she had, they invested in her and they educated her, actually with an education far greater than most women of any race received at that time for her to learn those classics and so on as she was exposed to. So the Wheatley parents as well as the Wheatley children took care of educating her. She began writing poetry at a very young age and her poetry writing reflected the style of the day. She would write in iambic pentameter, she would write in couplets and in rhymes what was customary for the time. And she also included elements from Greek literature, elements from the British literature of the day as well. And it was not just copycat poetry. She had her own point of view on everything that she wrote about. Many of her early writings and continuing throughout her life of writing were miniature eulogies of sorts. Because in Africa, it was the women who did the dances and did the mourning and the songs and the the eulogies for the dead. And so when she was in the United States, her poetry took on that form as well. So as distinguished leaders in the Americas and also in Britain would die, she would write poems related to them. Or if someone did some great thing who was living, she would also write about it. One of her earlier poems was about two men who had survived a catastrophe at sea and so she wrote about them and that poem was circulated around and it was probably at the time of about 1767 that that poem was circulated about the survival at sea about Hussey and coffin these two men and particularly in Newport, Rhode Island, is where this poem got some traction. So by the time that she came to 1770, she published one of the eulogy-type pieces to honor George Whitfield, who was an evangelist, and upon his death, and the poem ended up going over to England, and it was published with Ebenezer Pemberton's funeral sermon, the service that was funeralizing George Whitfield, And as a result of that, she became quite well known, not only in the Americas, but also over in Europe, in Britain. She attempted to get a book of poems published in the United States, in the New England states. However, at that time, in order to get a work published, You had to get subscribers to the work in advance, and people had to say, yes, they were going to purchase it, and they would have to put money up front in order to finance the project. Because she was a Black woman, she found that this was impossible. This was very difficult to do. People would not subscribe to the book of poetry that she had collected and that she wanted to publish. Now, the Wheatleys were very much her supporters in her writing and knowing the extent of her gifts, they actually decided to reach out to people in Europe to make a case for this poetry book. And because she had written the poem for George Whitefield when he died, she was known somewhat in Britain. And so they reached out to Selena Hastings, who was an English Countess of Huntington at the time. And she was very familiar with Phyllis Wheatley's work, and she agreed to finance the project. And so this book of poems was called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. And she had a foreword in the book that included notable dignitaries of the day to include John Hancock and many others, including the governor of Massachusetts because her writing was so profound, people did not believe that she really wrote these poems. And she had to stand before a group of people to defend her work. She stood before a panel, and this panel consisted of very prominent Boston citizens. And as a result of standing before this panel, defending this work and indicating it was her work, and these were her poems, It was clear to them that she was indeed the author of these poems. So in her book, this foreword included this panel acknowledgement by all of these dignitaries in the Boston area saying that, yes, they supported this book as well, and they acknowledged that it was her work. So all of this was in the foreword. In addition, something else that was a little bit unique and unusual is the book included a portrait of her as a Black woman. So here you have a portrait of a Black woman in the book. So it's clear that she's the author of the book, and also she's got all of these endorsements. So as a result of that, the book was published in Britain. It was published in London. Phyllis Wheatley traveled over to London by ship, and she was accompanied by Nathaniel Wheatley, who was the son of the Wheatleys, and he was opening the doors along the way because of his parents' contacts over there to make sure that everything happened. She had all kinds of audiences with high-level dignitaries in London and was even scheduled to see King George. However, she ended up having to come back to the Americas before that meeting actually took place. And in her life in the Americas, she also had audience with many dignitaries because she wrote poems, related to them and one such dignitary she wrote a poem about was George Washington. This was at the time of the Revolutionary War between the Americas and Britain and the fledgling colonies were getting their independence and so George Washington was the general over the American troops and he had a headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She wrote a poem, she wrote several poems about him, but she sent one of them to him. He was so impressed by her writing and her work that he invited her to actually come to his headquarters and meet him. And in fact, she did do that. She went to his headquarters to meet him. So she met famous dignitaries in the US and famous dignitaries in Britain as well. Her writing included letters, it included these eulogies of sort, and it included all kinds of poems and she was able in a very creative way to make social commentary about slavery even in her writings her writings were very christian oriented as well she spoke a lot that was related to the bible and what she was reading in the bible she was able to have a voice even about issues of the day and from her perspective it was the intention was to influence white abolitionists to recognize that slavery was an evil and something that should be ended, something that should be terminated. As it turns out, her writings were read by both slave owners and also abolitionists. The slave owners read it because they wanted to use the writings to convince the enslaved to become Christians and of course the abolitionists read it because she made a very good case for why slavery should be discontinued and she had to be somewhat subtle and because she was so gifted in writing in much later years when you get into the 20th century there are many people who criticized her because they didn't think that she was a strong enough anti-slavery voice what i would say is that she used her tremendous gift to be anti-slavery in a way that was in plain sight and view, and yet somewhat hidden. So it wasn't that she didn't have that voice or that she didn't care about those issues. She actually did, and she did in fact write about them. Also because her writing was so profound and showed and demonstrated her ability to understand Greek writing and Latin and so on, it demonstrated the intellectual prowess of African people and the creativity. Many people could imagine that she could write something, but they wouldn't go far enough to say that her writing showed independent thought showed the creativity that in fact it did show because there was a fiction in people's minds that African people did not have the capacity for this. In fact, African people have the capacity to do anything that they might choose to do in the world and whatever God has gifted them with if they're not oppressed, suppressed, and kept from the tools that are needed for success, tools such as learning to read and to write in education, tools such as food and shelter to have a healthy life. And mostly in the Americas, the lives of African people were so dire, they barely had subsistence to survive on, let alone mostly no education. And so therefore it would appear that this narrative, a false narrative, which was painted about African people was true, even though it was not, it was a false narrative that was built into the racism of the time, the prejudice of the time and the disenfranchisement of the time. However, her work was in stark contrast to this narrative showing here she was an African woman born in West Africa and demonstrating this ability at learning and at writing. After she came back from Europe, having this book of poetry published there, and her fame was in, on both continents at this point, it turned out that Mrs. Suzanne Wheatley died shortly after Phyllis's return to the Americas. And Mr. Wheatley also died shortly after that, maybe within a few years. So now she doesn't have her benefactors. And before Mrs. Wheatley's death, she did grant Phyllis her freedom. And you have to understand that being granted freedom at that time was very difficult because there weren't very many jobs that a Black person could do or that someone would hire them to do. And life was tough for everyone because it's post-revolutionary wartime. And so people were struggling in general. And those who were disenfranchised were struggling even more. She ultimately married a man, a free black man named John Peters, who was an entrepreneur of sorts. As the story goes, he was a handsome man. He may have been in the grocery business. However, he had many failed businesses. Things did not work out well for him. He was not able to provide for Phyllis properly nor was he able to provide for the three children that they had. And those three children all died in infancy. They lived horrifically, impoverished life. She lived in squalid, horrific conditions, and at some point had to work as a scrub woman in a boarding house. And this was work that she really had not done. And although she had done housekeeping work and other work in the Wheatley home, it was under much more favorable conditions. She was emancipated, if you will. She was freed. She was free to an environment that was not free and where there were not resources and where life was extremely hard and extremely difficult. And in fact, her husband ended up being imprisoned because of the various debts that he had. So, At the time of her death, she was only 31 years old. It was the 5th of December, 1784. She died in a horrible condition, uncared for and alone. And the last child that she had died shortly after her so that both she and the child were buried together. She attempted to publish a second book of poems and she had amassed at least 145 poems. However, in the Americas, She could not get the subscribers to subscribe to the poetry. She could not get the book published there. All of her benefactors were gone now. And the extended members of the Wheatley family, although they still knew her, knew of her, apparently were not providing support to her. And therefore, things were stopped. And even to this day, most of those poems that would have been in her second volume have been lost and have not been recovered. The first book of poetry was preserved. However, the poems for the second book, for the most part, were not. So her story to me is one that's heartbreaking when I think of someone with such talent to not be able to continue and to have had audiences with dignitaries on both continents And yet to die in such poverty and squalor is heartbreaking to me, even in sharing the story with you. And yet her voice lives on in the works that did survive and that did make it and live past her. We still hear her. And I want to share some things from some of her writings. When she was writing at the time of the American Revolution and when the American colonies were obtaining their freedoms, through war from Britain. At that time, Britain was referred to as Britannia and the Americas were often referred to as Columbia. And we hear in the district of Columbia still a vestige of that. So one of the poems that she wrote at that time, I'm gonna read just the ending of it, which is kind of a triumphant ring because a lot of her poems were also patriotic. And she talked a lot about the Americas. And so here she says, Britannia owns her independent reign, Hibernia, Scotia, and the realms of Spain. And great Germania's ample coast admires the generous spirit that Columbia fires. Auspicious heaven shall fill with favoring gales, where'er Columbia spreads her swelling sails. To every realm shall peace her charms display and heavenly freedom spread her gold ray." That was her song of triumph about the Revolutionary War. She also wrote a poetic eulogy of General David Worcester. Here, I want to read a piece of that as well. And she says, "'But how presumptuous shall we hope to find divine acceptance with the Almighty Mind, while yet, O deed, ungenerous, they disgrace, and hold in bondage Afric, blameless race. Let virtue reign, and then accord our prayers. Be victory ours, and generous freedom theirs. And this is a very good example of her commenting on the evil of slavery at the time. And she often said that the colonies could not come to their full greatness as long as the evil of slavery continued to be practiced. She described and compared American slaveholding, that experience, to Egypt in years past enslaving the Israelites. And so in a quote about her talking about this, she says, Quote, Otherwise, perhaps the Israelites had been less solicitous for their freedom from Egyptian slavery. I don't say they would have been contented without it, by no means, for in every human breast, God has implanted a principle which we call love of freedom. It is impatient of oppression and pants for deliverance. And by the leave of our modern Egyptians, I will assert that the same principle lives in us. So again, that's a very bold statement about slavery in the United States. One of her most famous poems was a poem that she wrote called On Being Brought from Africa, to America. And I'll read a bit of that as well, just so you can hear her voice, this voice from the 1700s that we can still hear today. And she said, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption." neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic lie. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. Calling people still to a higher level Of understanding about all God's children here on the earth and calling for proper treatment. And yet, in her own life, she did not receive that in her latter years and in the time of her death, living in poverty with so many gifts and talents, dying at a young age of 31 and with no children to survive her. And so, you might wonder. What are the business lessons that come out of Phyllis Wheatley's story? And there are three that I'd like to highlight. In your organization, it's important to look around. Recognize the Phyllis Wheatleys in your organization. Recognize the talent that God has placed there. No matter what color it comes in, no matter what package that talent comes in, you have precious talent. God-given talent in your organization. So recognize that talent, look for it, recognize it. When you see it, number two, develop the talent. Now the Wheatleys, to their credit, they developed the talent that they saw in Phyllis, and they also used their influence to open many doors for her in her life where there was a challenge and where there was a problem in creating what I call a true living leadership legacy is they failed to do number three. And number three is to support that talent for the long term. As an executive, as a CEO, you're only going to be in the organization for a brief period of time. Then you will transition and leave and go to your next appointment or to retirement and your next level of significance, whatever God is calling you to for that next chapter. Your organization will remain. The people in the organization remain. What are you going to do to create a sustainable platform for that company and for the people in the company? There are implications today for modern day diversity, equity, and inclusion, for the importance of leaving champions in the organization, for the importance of creating a platform that will last past you in the organization so that the Phyllis Wheatleys and the many other talented people not only will be recognized, not only will be developed, however, will be resourced to continue so that they contribute all that God has called them to contribute for a life that's sustained beyond a short time of 31 years. So think about that, business executives and leaders, as you are creating a living leadership legacy for your organization. So as we close today, I want to remind us of several things that come from the scriptures. One is that Jesus knew that in this world we would have trouble. And in John 16, he said that in this world you'll have trouble. And remember, though, that I have overcome the world. That was one of the messages he said. He also said in John 14, 3, this notion that we weren't going to be here forever and that he was going to prepare a place for us because we're pilgrims in this land, strangers on the earth. Yet he was going to prepare a place for us where in his father's house, there are many mansions and he was going ahead of time to make that happen. So no matter what happens to us on the earth plane, it was the reminder that our lives are only temporary on the earth plane. We have an eternal life that will be lived on a different plane. And hopefully, if you acknowledge and believe in God and his Messiah, you will join that eternal plane where he will be. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, is the chapter that outlines all of the great heroes of faith, people like Abraham and Moses, we find people like Jacob, we find Joseph, we find so many heroes of the faith acknowledged in the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. And yet it comes to a latter part of that book. And we get a description of those people who suffered a lot. God performed many miracles and all kinds of Wondrous acts do many of the people I just named and yet there were plenty of others who went to early deaths who were martyred and who were ill-treated on the earth. So in Hebrews 11 and starting with verse 36 it says still others had trial of mockings and scourgings yes and of chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two were tempted were slain with the sword They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And then in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, I want to continue with what the Hebrew writer says. Hebrews 13, starting with 14, he says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased, so remember to thank God. Remember to recognize that this earth plane is no continuing city for us. Remember to share with others the bounty which God has given to you, and as we celebrate the life of Phyllis Wheatley, I say that the world was not worthy of her. leadership resources.